Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 40, reading verses 40 to 47. Reading from the English Standard Version translation. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Father, enable us to take this passage, to consider it under the influence and enlightening of your Holy Spirit, uh, that we may find in this passage the continuation of the great theme and themes of the Gospel of Mark, uh, that in this story, your story, uh, we have found a Savior and a Savior who has redeemed us from all of our sins. And to know, Father, that every aspect of this story has been vital and important, significant, as you have ordained in all of history to proclaim this gospel throughout the world. And so we pray, even as we look at the facets and details and elements of this story, we might understand how it also speaks to us. This we would pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus, who also designed for us as believers to be salt and light in this world. In his name, amen. So at this part, at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has died. He has breathed his last. He has yielded up his spirit. The darkness has now lifted. It's following the ninth hour in the afternoon. All the other strange events, earthquakes and so forth, these also have ceased. The crowds begin to disperse, to return into the city. In the Gospel of Luke, we read that many were beating their breasts in lament. But others do not leave the scene. Uh, soldiers remain. Jo John's Gospel tells us that they actually break the legs of the two thieves who are crucified with Jesus to hasten their death. They come to Jesus, they find that he's already dead, but as a kind of insurance to that point, uh, one of the soldiers uh, puts a spear into his side, up into his chest, and out flows the blood and the water which, medically speaking, would be proof that Jesus has already died. There were others, too, 
we read about in this passage. Uh, Mark tells us, Luke and Matthew as well, they all mention the many women who had followed Jesus from Jerusalem, I mean from Galilee all the way up to Jerusalem. These many women who had served Jesus and ministered to Jesus uh, throughout all of his Galilean ministry. They were there uh, watching from a distance. Yet among those women, there were three who had stationed themselves much closer to the cross. And then Mark and all the Gospels mentioned a man by the name of Joseph, Joseph Arimathea. He was also there. He's the one who takes the body of Christ, gives it a proper burial. The third aspect of the story, besides these women that are specifically mentioned, besides Joseph of Arimathea, is in fact the tomb. Uh, this tomb is a new tomb. It's freshly cut out of rock. It, according to what John tells us, is located in a garden that is actually nearby the place of the crucifixion. And it belongs to Joseph. It is where he places the body of Christ. We can look at this passage then, and we can focus upon three elements in it. We can think about the women. We can think about Joseph. We can think about the tomb. They present a kind of threefold witness to what takes place after Jesus dies. Because that too is part of the gospel story. What takes place, Jesus is crucified, then what takes place after that crucifixion before he's resurrected on the third day. Jesus is buried and he remains under the power of death for a time before he rises from the dead. In the letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 15, the Apostle Paul makes that time of death, the burial, as part of the gospel message when he says in verses 3 and 4, For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. So Mark concludes this period of time from the point when Jesus voluntarily died as the payment of our sins until the time in which Jesus is raised from the dead on Easter morn. We might look at this passage and essentially say this. Every follower of Jesus and every event that takes place has its place in God's redemptive plan. We think about the women. We think about Joseph. We think about the tomb. Every follower of Jesus and every event that takes place has its true place in God's redemptive plan. Now, with respect to the women, what I want us to see is that here are women who do not cease to serve Jesus even after he has died. That's their heart's desire. Then considering Joseph, we're going to see a man whose secret faith now becomes public in the face of Jesus dying 
and being dead. And then thirdly, we're going to see the tomb, which God sovereignly prepared to be a proper burial place, the resting place in the grave for his beloved son. Now, I want us to think about these three, the women, Joseph, and the tomb. And I want us to connect those things to our lives in this way, to remember that all followers of Jesus, all events in the lives that we live as followers of Jesus, all events that take place, all places that we might go, all of these things have their proper place under the sovereignty of God and his great redemptive story. That the pattern we see here reflects a constant pattern from the time that God first began to redeem human beings in the garden until he comes again. That all followers of Jesus and all events in their lives have their proper place in God's great story. Now, the, the occurrence of the women in this story, uh, we, have to, um, we have to recognize in terms of the culture of the day, the Jewish culture, the Greco-Roman culture, is really quite remarkable. Um, these women do not cease to have a heart to serve Jesus, even though Jesus has died. And specifically, three of these women, verse 40 mentions Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary, the mother of James the Lesser and Joseph, and Salome, who happens to be the mother, the wife of Zebedee, and therefore the mother of, of James and John. Although they see Jesus die, they don't think their service to Jesus has come to an end. Their commitment to Jesus continues in their desire to honor him with respect to his burial. So we see in verse 47 that two of the Marys are actually there watching where uh, the body of Jesus is laid in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. We know from Luke's gospel that they immediately return to their home, and even before the Sabbath begins, uh, they begin to put together the spices and the perfume and all the burial things that they would need to come back after the Sabbath to give Jesus a proper burial. Now, what this means in terms of the events that are going on in the story, that uh, Joseph, who actually buries Jesus, goes inside of the tomb, and all the things which he does inside of the tomb are not visible to these ladies. They don't know what Joseph have done. They only know that their deepest desire, even though Jesus has died, even in their grief, even in the brokenness of their hearts, their great desire is to continue to serve Jesus and to continue to honor Jesus and to do everything which the law of God would prescribe for them to do in terms of honoring his body by properly preparing it for its internment. At this point, they're thinking this is not the temporary place of the body of Jesus, but at this point, they're thinking this is the permanent resting place of the one whom they have loved so deeply. Now, a couple of things I want to point out. 
for Mark to include this in his gospel, Matthew and Luke and John as well, the fact that all four of the gospels give a special attention to the women, very counter-cultural. American women, for the most part, do not understand other parts of the world where women are genuinely treated as second class. I know American women have their rightful gripes and their rightful beefs about culture and, and, and inequalities and all those kinds of things. But until you've actually lived in second and third world countries, you really do not have a direct experiential grasp of what it's like for women to be treated second class. But throughout the Greco-Roman world and within the Jewish world, women were genuinely treated as second class. There was a Jewish prayer that was common during the days of Jesus in which a Jew would pray, I thank you, God, that did you, you did not make me a Gentile or a dog or a woman. Now, the tragedy of that is that the Jews had the one document. Now, listen carefully to this. The Jews had the one document in all of the world of ancient literature that declared that women were created co-equal with men as image bearers of the true and living God. From the very beginning of the Bible, the declaration had been given that women equally with men bore the very image of the living God and therefore equal in value, equal in worth, equal in dignity in every way. The depth of what sin does to human beings is the fact that those who had the truth from Adam to the time of Christ within the Jewish nation, women were not treated the way God designed for women to be treated. To have the revelation of God, a God who declares that I have created men and women both in my image, and then to find at the time of Jesus' day a pious Jewish rabbi praying, I thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile or a dog, which, by the way, dogs were not household pets. They were animal scavengers. Thank you that you've not made me a Gentile, a canine scavenger, or a woman. What Mark writes here, echoed in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew and John, what Mark writes here in terms of including women in terms of their continued service to Jesus is what we might say is very honorable mention in the direction of restoring within the mind of those who are followers of Jesus exactly what the Bible had always taught about women. The impact of the role of women in the life of Christ and in the death of Christ and then in the resurrection of Christ did not lose its impact on the rest of the apostles and upon the New Testament church. We see this most clearly 
in terms of what the Apostle Paul says and what the Apostle Peter say about marriage and the marriage relationship. Uh, The well-known passage in Ephesians chapter 5 declares to men, Men, you are to love your wife no differently than Jesus loved his bride, the church, in which he gave himself for it. And Paul includes by saying, if you don't get it in terms of imitating Jesus, realize that you husbands are supposed to love your wives even as you love your own bodies. You will not find any sentiment like that in all of the ancient literature of the ancient world. You'll find the opposite among the great Greek philosophers. You won't find anything among the Roman writers that ever echoes anything like this. And then the Apostle Peter, uh, declaring to husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way as fellow heirs of the grace of life. The significance of the role of women in this last part of the Gospel of Mark is that they were the ones who, when Jesus died, continued to believe they needed to honor and serve him. You see, the contrast is by what is obviously missing, the disciples. Except for John, who is there at the cross and who is commanded by Jesus to take care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. The other ten disciples are absent, gone. They fled. Uh, When Jesus gets arrested, their ministry to Jesus stops. Jesus gets put on the cross, and the women are still there. And we ought to think about how part of the gospel story is God saying again, to men and to women. This is how I love you and care for you and value you. You are created in my image. And in this particular occasion, the love that the women have for their Savior Jesus surpasses the love that the disciples had for Jesus at that point in time. Think about Josephus. We're told that uh, Josephus, uh, in fact, all four of the Gospels make reference to him, and they tell us quite a a bit about him. We're told that Josephus was, first of all, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Mark tells us that he was uh, looking for the coming of the kingdom of God. Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man who was also looking for the coming of the kingdom of God, but who did not consent to what the rest of the Sanhedrin had done in terms of their decision against Jesus. Matthew tells us that he was also a rich man. And then John tells us that uh, not only that he went to Pilate, but that he had someone who was helping him, another secret disciple named Nicodemus, which in the Gospel of John, uh, one reads about in chapter 3. We have this information about Joseph 
that he was a follower of Jesus, we are told, but in secret because of a fear for the Jews. But he is there when Jesus is crucified. And think about the things that are very significant with respect to Joseph. What he does in the condition of who he was. He rightly had a fear of the Jews, the rest of the Jewish leadership. They had made many threats against those who were following Jesus. They had even thought about putting Lazarus to death, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, at the same time that they were going to put Jesus to death. It was not a safe thing to be a friend of Jesus at this point in time in history. And so we can, with some great degree of understanding, have a feeling for what was going on with Joseph. But I want us to understand that Joseph, whose faith was secret, goes public with his faith when Jesus is dead, while the disciples, whose faith had been public while Jesus was alive, went into hiding when Jesus was dead. And therefore, what we see in in Joseph at this time is a far greater risk-taking faith than what we find in the disciples. A faith that went from secrecy to the willingness to publicly acknowledge his love and concern for Jesus when Jesus was powerless and dead and in the grave. The disciples had witnessed literally hundreds of examples of the supernatural power of Christ and being brought into close proximity to Christ, one could understand how during the three and a half years of ministry, they heard all of these threats against Jesus, but did not truly worry about it until they got right into Jerusalem itself, into the headquarters of all the opposition. And then they had the crisis of faith and the crisis of courage, and they all flee. Joseph, who had seen far less of Jesus than the disciples and who had had a great fear of his fellow colleagues in the Sanhedrin and therefore would not voice his his belief in Jesus during this time. When Jesus becomes powerless in death, his faith becomes public and bold. He also is an example of how much stronger and deeper his faith was than the faith of the disciples. Appreciate this as well. What does Joseph of Arimathea represent for us? When Jesus died, there were a host of unanswered questions. What comes next? 
Is there really going to be a resurrection? What does this mean in terms of all the th- wonderful things which you've seen and the miracles and so forth? And what does it all mean? He's dead. Is this the end of it all? All of those questions. In spite of all of those questions, Joseph publicly goes forward with his faith. It is easy to believe when all goes well. It is so difficult to believe when light becomes darkness, when the times are very hard, when it doesn't seem like any answer can come. Joseph's faith is deeply rewarded Easter morning. Our God will take us through the dark days between Good Friday and Easter morning when questions go unanswered, tragic things go unrectified, injustices seem to prevail. Because in the final analysis, the resurrection of Jesus gives us the promise that God will make everything ultimately right for those who love him for those who trust him. The third aspect of the story is the tomb. And there are specifics about the tomb that Mark mentions. We have other evidence and information from the other Gospels that that point out how God had sovereignly and providentially prepared this tomb. We, We would think, first of all, that the, the, the women, they felt a responsibility to Jesus to give him a proper burial. They're not aware that Joseph is actually, under God's providence, going to do this. The disciples, in their fearfulness, whatever they thought about giving Jesus a proper burial, uh, it's not going to come from them. But in God's providence, he prepares this tomb. And you read in Mark's account that when they laid Jesus in the tomb, that Josephus rolled a stone over the front of the tomb, the entrance of the tomb, to close it off. Archaeology tells us that all around the city of Jerusalem, up on the mountain, hundreds, even thousands of these graves dug into the limestone nature of the Mount Uh, Mount Zion. But they were of two different sorts. The most common tombs were tombs that were excavated and then the rectangular opening was closed with a rectangular stone slab door that was put in. But 15% of the tombs uh, were dug such a way that although the interior of the tombs were like the others, these were closed by uh, a large round stone 
that would be rolled over the entrance to the tomb. Only the wealthy could afford such a tomb. And we're told in the account here that this is the case. Uh, the case is, is that Joseph of Arimathea is a wealthy man, a rich man, and this is his tomb that has never yet been used. So in the providence of God, we have an unused tomb which doesn't have any um, previous dead bodies decomposed or bones or anything. And so during the internment that Jesus undergoes, God in his providence has placed Jesus not in a place of corruption, but in a place that still has, as it were, the pristine nature of nature. It has not yet, according to the Jewish conception of things, been defiled by death. So Jesus, by God's sovereign plan, has Joseph, a rich man, put Jesus into a tomb that has never been used before. And then a large stone, circular, which they say uh, weigh about a ton, is rolled in front of the entrance. Now there's historically apologetic uh, kind of, of, of significance to this tomb. Um, in, in, in the history of the modern era, from the Enlightenment on, as critics wanted to do everything they could to destroy the basis of Christianity by arguing that uh, different things happened to Jesus rather than what the gospel accounts present. Uh, there was one who maintained that the way they explain, the way the empty tomb is to be explained on Easter morning is the fact that the man Jesus never died. Schleiermacher, 1799, uh, put forth the first idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross, he simply swooned. Now, there was a lot of good reaction to that theory. Even a medicine of the early 18th century recognized that one could hardly ever survive the crucifixion by being placed into a tomb and having no immediate medical help. 1965, Hugh Schoenfeld wrote a book uh, his credentials were he was a biblical scholar, but you can put the word biblical in quotes. He was not a believing scholar. He wrote the Passover plot, which was a conspiracy theorist kind of book that maintained that, um, that uh, Jesus and the disciple John and Joseph of Arimathea and others plotted the death of Jesus to fake the death of Jesus in order to move along this messianic idea that Jesus was the Christ. But one of the obstacles to that theory, besides all of the facts surrounding it, is the stone. It's possible if you got put into one of these other kinds of tombs and you were alive to push the stone out. No man could, from the inside, open up one of these tombs that Jesus was placed in. It's just simply not possible. It wouldn't be pushed over, and it would be impossible to roll it back by oneself. There's no way to exit the tomb on one's own and somehow uh, 
pretend to be the Lord of life after undergoing what Jesus had undergone. The tomb itself closes off all such kinds of speculative ideas uh, raised up against what truly happened. But we should think about the tomb the way the Apostle Paul thought about the tomb. And we find that in Romans chapter 6, where Paul connects us as believers by our union with Christ to that time in which Jesus was in the tomb. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Romans chapter 6, the first four verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness. Of life. Now here's the connection that Paul makes to Jesus in the tomb and us believers. Even as Jesus died, truly dead, buried, entered into a state of death, so by our union with Christ, we were united to these things as well. So that Paul can say, by this union with Christ, we were buried with Christ when he was buried. But then Paul makes this comment in verse 7 of Romans chapter 6. He who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, by our union with Christ, we have been united to the saving power of his death and the burial of Christ to mean for us that here we see as death breaks life, as death even terminates our connection to sin in terms of our actively involving ourselves in sin, Paul says being united to Christ, buried with Christ, the once over arching, dominating connection that sin had to us as believers has been broken. It's like Charles Wesley wrote in For a Thousand Tongues We Sing about the death of Christ. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean his blood availed for me. Jesus went into the tomb and in the great sovereignty of God, all of those united to Jesus from before the foundations of the world entered the tomb with him by their union with Christ. So that in the experience of Jesus dying for our sin, undergoing death for a time and being resurrected that we too having the power of sin broken in our lives would live unto the newness of life.
we come to the table this morning. And the table preaches to us the gospel. It reminds us of these things that God has done for us in Christ, his son, through his death, his burial, his resurrection. What we could never do for ourselves. And all that Jesus did, he did because we have sinned. And all that Jesus did, he did so that we would be forgiven of our sins. And all that Jesus did, he did so that we would finally and ultimately be free of our sin. When we come to the table this morning, these are the great truths that this table means for us.